mindset of adventure and travel and wanting to do something out, outside the norm. And again, the norm is always going to be there. You can always find a time, whether you're 25 or 35 or 45, to finally settle down and grow up, so to speak. But if you're willing to take some risk, to put yourself in uncomfortable positions, to learn and, and understand different cultures, yeah, travel can is, is an amazing way to grow as an individual. I uh, personally have visited over 54 countries and lived overseas for more than 10 years. And I'll never regret one bit of that. And fortunately for me, like you say, I had a career that allowed me to do that. But for folks that are listening that maybe don't want to get into diving, but are interested in plumbing, you know, electrical work, carpentry, these are skills that are easily transferable from region to region, from state to state, from country to country. Honestly, the basic concepts of building being plumb, level, straight and true are the same, no matter if you're in, you know, uh, Iowa or India or you know, Saudi Arabia, wherever you go, there's a need for professional tradespeople out there to get the work done. And if you can make a good living doing it and pursuing a, a career on the road, I, I highly encourage you. If you're listening to this and you're like, ah, oh, you know, what should I do? Get those skills and then keep your doors open. The world is uh, your oyster if you want it to be. Welcome to the Skill Stadium. A podcast for the skilled trades. Where you can learn about the opportunities and benefits of working in the skilled trades from business owners, hiring managers, and the hardworking, talented professionals. And now, your host, Keith Williams. Welcome to the Skill Stadium Podcast, episode 115. I'm your host, Keith Williams. Thank you for tuning in. On today's show, we will be talking about two professions the diving profession and carpentry. My guest today is a veteran of the U.S. Navy, where he trained as a second-class diver and a PADI master instructor. He also works as a UBC commercial diver, and he works currently as a UBC regional training center instructor apprentice coordinator for the carpentry industry. What makes today's guest good at what he does is his attention to detail and communication skills. He's most proud of celebrating his 23rd wedding anniversary. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And is looking forward to a diving trip in the Galapagos Islands next year. During his free time, he is a fellow podcaster, host of Podcast Grit Nation. Entering the stadium today is Joe Caldwell. Joe, how are you this afternoon? I'm doing great, Keith. Thank you so much for uh, having me on your show today. My pleasure, Joe. I first have to ask you about this trip to the Galapagos Islands. Is this your first time? Is this somewhere you've been before? Nope. This would be my first time to the Galapagos. I've traveled and dived all around the world, but this is uh, sort of one of those bucket list destinations that I really am, uh, was hoping to do a few years ago on my 50th birthday. And I said, I didn't want to wait until my 60th to make this happen. So I'm going next October, about a year from now. So it's awesome. booked and ready to go. Awesome. And is this, is that time of the year a good time to go weather-wise? Is there a particular reason why you picked October? It is good for the bigger uh, pelagics. Some of the bigger fish come through there, the sharks, the uh, rays, the whales and that. So yeah, I'm going to be uh, diving off of a liverboard boat and we'll spend eight days diving around the Galapagos Island. That'll be great. That'll be great. I got to ask you, are you going to make an investment in a GoPro camera or something where you could- I've Definitely going to be capturing some imagery down there. I do have a GoPro and uh, yeah, I'll definitely be doing that, but I'm really there for the experience and just try to take as much of it in as I can. And, and again, uh, hopefully get some good interactions with some of the bigger animals down there. 
Definitely. No, that is, uh, it's a trip of a lifetime. I'm sure we've, it's, I've seen documentaries on the Galapagos Islands and it's pretty incredible. So I'm sure you're going to have a good time. So tell us about what it's like to be a diver. What's that like? Well, what it's like to be a diver. That's a great question, Keith. Thanks for asking that. It's something that, you know, I pretty much grew up with since the age of 12. That is kind of the defining characteristic of who I was. I always considered myself a diver since from an early age. I got introduced to it in a recreational sense, uh, mass fins and snorkel tagging along with some neighbors of mine that were getting scuba certified. And I thought that just seemed like a, a magical thing to do. Christmas was coming. I, I managed to get my dad to agree to uh, getting me into a junior open water scuba class. And uh, as soon as I put on my first set of tanks and threw the regulator in my mouth and started breathing underwater, I, I was sold. You know, it was a just just a, a really mind-blowing experience. And then it, it coincidentally, the, the neighbors ended up moving down to the Florida Keys during when I was 16. I'd saved up all my uh, lawn mowing money. I bought a ticket out to Florida, spent a month with them. They took me out to Pennecamp Underwater State Park off the coast of uh, Florida, Key Largo. And uh, again, another just my eye-opening experience that sealed the deal. I knew that I wanted to become a, a professional diver and I knew my grades weren't going to get me too far uh, exiting high school. College wasn't really on my, uh, my radar, but being a, a U.S. Navy diver was. And so everything I did was geared towards that end. And fortunately, I was accepted into the program back in 1985. And I graduated from the class of 85-25 to Charlie, second class dive school at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. Nice, nice. And you know, another thing too is military training is probably the highest level of training one would get as a di I mean, I, I don't think there's is there any place where you're going to get better training as a diver? It was pretty arduous. I'll, I'll gear, give you that. We started with a class. I believe my class started with about 27, 28 folks. We graduated seven out of that class of 85, wow. 25. So a pretty high attrition rate. I was very proud to be someone that got uh, got through the program. They test you physically. They test you mentally. They test your uh, adeptness in the water, your comfortability in the water. They do everything they can to wash you out, to break you. I was very tenacious and very focused on making it through the program. And I knew that I was not going to let them take my dream away from me. And so I persevered. I got out into the fleet. I was on a, a salvage vessel called the USS Recovery based in Little Creek, Virginia. And I was there as a salvage diver, worked in the Mediterranean, worked in the Caribbean. And after four years, I think I had accomplished everything I wanted to. I got the training that I wanted to. And I knew that as awesome as the experience of being in the, the Navy was, I didn't want to make it a career. And so I turned at that point, exiting the, the Navy to doing something I wanted to do for a period of time. I'd, I'd grown up, obviously, with my folks telling me what to do for the first 18 years, uh, the military telling me when to get get up, what to wear, what to eat, how to cut your hair, everything for the next four years. I said I wanted to do something different. And I uh, ended up buying a around the South Pacific ticket on Qantas Airlines. And I visited uh, Tahiti, I visited Australia and, and uh, New Zealand and Fiji. And I spent a year on the road and I was teaching diving down there. And I, I just knew that that was something that I wanted to pursue. And as it turned out, I ended up finishing that first year trip and I extended it for another six years, nice. uh, working in the South Pacific and working in the Caribbean. And ultimately close to the age of 30, I ended up in the country of all places, the country of Sweden. And I knew that my days as a recreational, free, fun-loving recreational scuba diver were getting close to the end and that I needed to shift gears as I approached 30. And it just so happened in the small town that I lived in about four hours north of Stockholm, 
there was a diving service, Hubenets Dikari, Hubenets Diving Service, and I was able to get back into my hard hat commercial diving roots. And uh, so that was fortunate for me because when I got to Sweden, I had a tan that was fading pretty fast and a bank account that was fading even faster and I needed to do something different. So it worked out pretty well. I love the adventure. One of the things that kind of jumps out at me is the portability of the career. It seems like you were able to go wherever you wanted to go. Obviously, you were somewhat strategic in your decisions, but talk about that for some young person who's listening right now who never even thought about diving as an option. And we have a lot of young people you know, who are trying to figure out what they want to do. And we're in a world today where the world is smaller. You can get up and travel. You can work in different countries. And I don't know. I think you grew as a person. I, I don't know what's your take on it, but I'm sure you grew as a person and those experiences shaped you into the man you are today. Talk about the opportunities for some, for the next generation of young people who want to pursue your path as a diver and be able to see the world. Yeah. For, for either for being a diver or just someone who has a mindset of adventure and travel and wanting to do something out outside the norm. And again, the norm is always going to be there. You can always find a time, whether you're 25 yes. or 35 or 45, to finally settle down and grow up, so to speak. But if you're willing to take some risk, to put yourself in uncomfortable positions, to to learn and, and understand different cultures, yeah, travel can is, is an amazing way to grow as an individual. I uh, personally have visited over 54 countries and lived overseas for more than 10 years. And I'll never regret one bit of that. And fortunately for me, like you say, I had a career that allowed me to do that. But for folks that are listening that maybe don't want to get into diving, but are interested in plumbing, electric, you know, electrical work, carpentry, these are skills that are easily transferable from region to region, from, from state to state, from country to country, honestly. The basic concepts of building, being plumb, level, straight, and true are the same, no matter if you're in, you know, uh, Iowa or India or, you know, Saudi Arabia. Wherever you go, you're, there's a need for professional tradespeople out there to get the work done. And if you can make a good living doing it and pursuing a career on the road, I, I highly encourage you. If you're listening to this and you're like, ah, oh, you know, what should I do? Get those skills and then keep your doors open. The world is your oyster if you want it to be. Joe, that's a great answer. I got to ask you another question. If I'm a young person and I go through your program, your apprenticeship carpentry program, and I want to go work overseas or in a different part of the country, is there a resource that helps them where you can guide them if, if they want to work somewhere outside of their community? Because, you know, maybe they want to leave. Is there something that you can help them with? Or, or sorry, a resource that is available for them? Yeah, at the, at the moment, the United Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners of America and Canada is the organization that I work for. The UBC has been in the business of bettering its members' lives since 1881, so 141, 142 wow. years. And we are based, though, in North America. Uh, the skills that you you gather as a professional carpenter or exterior interior system specialist or pile driver or diver or millwright are transferable, but we don't have an infrastructure in place through the UBC to work outside of, of the US and Canada at this point. As far as I know, the, uh, the apprentices that I work with here in the Pacific Northwest, primarily Southwest Washington and Oregon, are getting skills that can be transferred. Most people do go through their their apprenticeship here and in, in locally. And then what they do after that is, again, entirely up to them. The, their sure. Own making. So the other challenge here, too, is, you know, educators and, you know, what's 
One of the challenges I see is that educators are not really supporting. How do we get educators and parents to support students, sons and daughters to pursue careers in the skill trades? If you're talking about career counselors and folks like that in high school, whose job yes, it is the to parents, direct the their charges yeah, to an avenue that is going to give them some socioeconomic benefit upon yes. exiting high school. Yeah, you are correct, Keith, that they are definitely doing a big disservice in today's economy by directing those people to college. It's a bit of an oversold notion now that the only way to, you know, again, socioeconomic gains and pride and professionalism is through a college degree. And that is just not turning out to be so. Uh, so many of those college degrees, especially when you enter college and you don't have a, a defined career path, you know, yes. you're, you're just going to try to figure out what you want to do in life. You, you don't have the, the aspiration to be a doctor, a lawyer, an architect, something that requires that degree. You're just going there to figure it out. Horribly expensive to try to figure out what you want to do you know, mm -hmm. 20, 30, $60,000 a year to figure out what you want to do. And that's not really doing anyone a service when they walk away from a four year long program, there may be 160, $200,000 behind the eight ball before they even get their first job. And yes. unfortunately, a lot of those degrees that that are available through uh, higher education universities can be outsourced to third world nations where maybe they're paying their people doing that type of work peanuts on a dollar, and uh, they don't need the degree there or perhaps it becoming rendered uh, obsolete overnight by an advancement in technology. Again, if I were someone who was directing someone that maybe doesn't have a, an established goal in mind that university can provide, the building trades are a great place to go, especially a union apprenticeship. And a union apprenticeship where you earn as you learn. I like to say you get the skills to pay the bills yes. uh, with 6,000 hours. At PNCI, the Pacific Northwest Carpenters Institute, where I work here in, in Portland, our apprentices go through a four-year-long construction college. They get 6,000 on-the-job hours backed up by 640 academic hours in order to gain that journey-level certification as a union carpenter or union interior exterior specialist, pile driver, or millwright. It is a fantastic way to set yourself, your life off on the right foot. You exit our program paying nothing. And this is something that a lot of people, Keith, really have trouble wrapping their heads around. But when you exit a union apprenticeship, such as the one that I work at, you walk away paying nothing. Okay, mm -hmm. there's $300 more or less in book fees over the course of four years, but the education is member-sponsored, member-supported. We pay it forward. Ever since I became a union carpenter, a diver within the carpenter's union, I was giving a, roughly about a dollar an hour, paying it forward to the education and advancement of people that were interested in coming into our apprenticeship programs. And that's been going on for almost 100 years. All right. So this is a great system, member sponsored. We're building the future generation of people that can build the infrastructure of America and Canada. And it's a fantastic plan. So if it were, again, to answer your question, if it were me and I had to make a decision beside, between giving someone $200,000 bill on a degree that could be rendered obsolete overnight or the pathway to success skills that can't be outsourced, the work here being done in America and Canada needs to be done by skilled, trained professionals that are you know, getting their education through union apprenticeships, boom, you've got a recipe for success. You can buy a house, you can start a family, you can have a new vehicle, and you can do everything to recapture the American dream, if you will.
No, I hear you. I also think that you getting started at a younger age in the workforce also helps you to make a better adjustment because you're starting, let's say, at 18. So you're starting to develop those habits because you're working now. You're not, you're working and, and, and being educated at the same time. And so you're not losing that time. Time is very valuable. I hear what you're saying. And I wish that was the case. I wish more people would hear this message, Keith, and come in right out of high school and start in the trades at 18, 19, not saying that there aren't, but the average age, the average mm -hmm. age of an apprentice at PNCI is 27 years old. So these are people that have knocked around, maybe worked some non-union, maybe had tried some, some other jobs, other career paths, maybe had exited the military, maybe were just trying to figure out who they were. And then they finally met someone once one way, shape or form, realized that there was a way in which to turn their passion for building into a lucrative career. And so we're happy to have those people with some life experience behind their belt because they, they really value it. When they come into a program after working minimum wage jobs for the, yes. you know, a good part of their life exiting high school, and then they find the livable wages and the benefits of medical, vision, and dental for not only themselves, but for their families, the access to training, the pensions that we have as union members that can set you up for, for future success. You know, once you exit the trades and you, you retire with a, a pension that provides you a retirement with dignity, man, it's, it's a great deal. So I agree. You know, we need to get the word out. We need to encourage these career counselors and these people that are, that are trying to help their sons and daughters, you know, to a better way of life. Doing the disservice of just cramming college down their throat just seems like a disservice to them. There are other career options and pathways to make a good living in this country. How do we, you know, and you mentioned daughters because we do know that the skilled trades doesn't have as many women, doesn't have as many minority representation. How do we change that? Because I know if you look and you don't see anybody that represents you in a profession, it doesn't give you an incentive to want to work in that profession. And I'm wondering how we, how we can address that to get more minorities and women into your profession. Well, there's a lot to unpack with that question right there, Keith, but I'll, I'll, I'll have to say that you're right. You know, oftentimes people are inspired by role models that they see. And if they've got a you know, a, a mother or an aunt or a family member, a female family member that was in the trades and, and could mirror that experience. That's one pathway. I think a lot of it also has to do with just sort of the misconception that, that female carpenters or women entering the trades aren't strong enough to do the trades. If you're really relying hard on your muscles to get your job done every day, I mean, it's a physically taxing job, don't get me wrong, but if, if it is just it just solely about the bulk of your muscle, you're doing something wrong at your job. Yes. I used to say, if yeah. I'm working too hard, I'm doing something wrong in the water. You know, you're not going to win against a strong current or a strong tide. You got to work smarter, not harder to get your job done. So to put it in a nutshell, though, I think it all comes down to respect. We have to create a, an environment and a, a culture of respect for all people within the trades. It's something that the UBC is working on or has been working on for a while to educate our members that we are an all-inclusive organization that is um, proud to have the diversity within our ranks because we know that you know we're stronger that way. We can look at, at, at problems from all different perspectives and all different angles, and we really work on developing uh, a pride and professionalism within our crafts. Personally, I'm very 
proud to belong to an organization, again, PNCI, that has my boss, my cause, the training center director for PNCI, has been instrumental in developing a program called Positive Job Site Culture. And it's basically an educational program, takes a couple hours, that really introduces these concepts of respect and professionalism to our union contractors and the contractors eat it up because you know there's there's no place today for the prejudices and for the behaviors of the past and we cannot continue to just say this is the, the way it's always been and this is the way it's always going to be we have to change that there's been some pretty significant cultural shifts within construction over the decades starting with our attitudes towards safety you can see back, you know, in the, the building of the, the skyscrapers in New York back in the 20s and 30s, there would be guys out there on a, on a steel beam 100 feet over the hundreds of feet over the city eating their sandwich. And there's pictures of it, famous pictures yes, of it. Those days are gone. A huge swing towards safety. Everybody wants to go to go home in as good as or better shape than they went to work. So obviously, you know, safety has been a, a major uh, sea change uh, or in our attitudes towards safety has been a major sea change in the industry. Drugs and alcohol abuse, today's modern professional carpenter, I'll say that we really, really, our union contractors really want to make sure when you come to work, they're paying you top dollar, right? They're, we're providing great value for our customers, but you cannot provide great value if you're high or drunk when you come to work. So there's a big change towards that attitude as well. And now, like you say, with inclusivity and diversity and equity within the trades, it is a major issue. We've got to bring in a lot of more people to help, again, fill the growing skills gap in this country. And we just can't resort, rely on the old ways of doing things. So everyone is invited to come in and do their best to make the building trades a career. And if we can do that, we can meet the needs. We've got some some massive infrastructure issues going on in our country. There is yes, finally some funding coming to help with this. And the workforce is lagging way behind because so many generations of kids have been pushed towards college. And we've got to turn that around. We've got to get them in the trades. Yeah. I also think a lot of people are not aware of the different type of construction jobs. Everybody has a stereotype of a construction job as somebody working out on the pavement, you know, with the drill, pounding into the road. And it's a lot more than that. You know, it's a lot more than just building a house. There is project management. There's a lot of different jobs within construction that people are not aware of. And there are also a lot of opportunities because some people will say, here's the argument. And I've pushed back on this when people say, well, it's hard work. And when you get older, you can't do that. Yeah, when you get older, you transition into somebody who's training, managing, and leading people. So you're not doing the same type of work. I had a plumber come to my house, and they had two people come. They were installing a new hot water heater, and a young guy hauled the hot water heater, and the older guy did the installation. installation so they, they, they worked together. They couldn't, both needed each other. The older Absolutely. guy knew more about the install. The younger guy had the muscle to, to lift it. So that's why I always say, once I saw that, I said, look, there's so many different jobs. It's the same thing in construction. The guys who are working and doing that physical labor eventually transition out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there, there's no two ways around it. It is a physically demanding job. It's a mentally taxing job. It is one that will challenge you with the hours and the, uh, the seasonality, seasonality of the work. The travel can be, you know, aggravating. Some people, I myself, 
ate it up. And I was very fortunate, as you mentioned early on in our, you know, my intro, I've been married for 23 years, just celebrated our my 23 year anniversary with a, a wonderful woman who was very patient with my, you know, desire to make commercial diving a, a craft and having to go where the work is. So there's a lot of things that will, will um, challenge you as a building trades professional. Again, you cannot just be pigeonholed or, or, or stuck into one mindset that this is what I do. I use my back for work. No, you know, you're using your brain. If, again, if you're not using your brain 10 times more than you're using your back, you're doing, doing something wrong. And again, I'm very proud and very happy to be belong to an organization, the UBC, that spends an inordinate amount of time for good reason towards leadership development and communication development and building future leaders. Because as you say, we, we're not always going to be able to, to do the heavy lifting, but we do yeah. have a role in, in the modern workforce and being mentors and in being supervisors and superintendents of projects, of being able to relay information clearly and concisely to the people that we're working for and the people that are working for us. So it's very, very important to continue to learn and grow as a building trades uh, professional today. And you can make it a career that will last you not just 15 years when your back and your knees are out, but 25, 30, 40 years, as long as you want to take it. And I did that. I shifted gears. Like you said, Keith, I shifted gears about three years ago. I left active commercial diving after having been you know, spending a lot of time underwater, I finally sure. got tired of climbing out of the out of the water in the freezing conditions. And I said, "Hey, I've got an opportunity to turn it around, work with education, become a coordinator for apprentices, and help them on their journey." Yeah, that's why. That's why I'm saying there's you're a prime example of that. You know, so and something that a lot of people are not realizing, and I'm sure you can speak to this, is that the wages are going up because there's a shortage of people. So it's like anything, there's supply and demand, right? And we have a budget put aside for the infrastructure of our country. You know, we have bridges falling apart. We're, we're, you're watching the news, you're seeing the same thing I'm seeing, right? And so this directly affects you, which means you've got to increase salaries in order to get people because this is our economy. You know, if we don't have proper infrastructure, it, it's going to hurt our economy. Talk about that in terms of the wages that young people could see, you know, because this is, you know, you're going to make more than you would just working your average regular retail job. Can you talk? And you're also, I believe you're probably going to get treated better because there's a shortage of people. If you're more valued, they're not going to say and do things to make you want to quit if we have a shortage of people. Right. This is me using common sense. Yeah, for sure. And like you say, you know, there is a uh, definitely a, a skills gap growing within the country. It is a supply and demand equation. You still have to earn your keep, you know, and that yes. is one thing that we take a lot of pride again in developing uh, building trades professionals that have a high level of skill. Because honestly, union carpenters, union plumbers, union electricians, union iron workers, union laborers are charging at a premium. We, we start off our apprentices with a livable wage. And at a certain point, they get those medical benefits that we talked about and access to training. It's statistically proven that union jobs are safer to be on. So that is another perk of being in a union. The pension that we talked about, the representation. So all that comes at a premium. And you have to ask yourself, well, as a customer who's got to reach into their pocket and pay these union contractors, why am I paying more for that union contractor than the non-union side of things? And well, the reality is we are better value. When you come into the job and you are professional 
and you put in a solid day's work and you have people that understand the value of their craft and what they're earning, they're going to work harder for you. They're going to do a better job. There's going to be less callbacks and it's going to be safer. And ultimately, that is the only reason why union building trades are as strong as they are, because we provide better value at the, in the end for the contract or for the customers. And so it's, it's really important that, you know, nothing is being given away. You know, one of the one of the most common stereotypes I think you'll see is, you know, uh, you've probably done it yourself. I know I've done it. I've driven down the road. I've literally seen six guys watching one guy dig a hole and you laugh over your shoulder and go, that must be a union job. Ah, that is not how union jobs work. There is no way that that six people are going to be standing around being paid, you know, what they're being paid to watch one guy work. We are all working. We are all earning. We are all contributing. Now, with that said, the question that you asked is what is a way? now. And I said 60% of journey level scale for for our trades here in the Pacific Northwest. Now, this may vary depending on which region you're listening to. But right now, a union carpenter for easy math in the Pacific Northwest, uh, at least in Southwest Washington and Oregon, is making $50 an hour plus benefits. And I think our benefit package is about $18. So you can arguably say say around $68, $70 for a journey level carpenter. So yeah, 60% of that, you're starting off right around $28, $29, $30 an hour. And this is someone that may or may not have a whole lot of craft skills to begin with. I mean, obviously they're a first-term apprentice. They may have difficulty reading a tape measure. They may have difficulty making marks on a board or making straight cuts. That is why they are in the apprenticeship. They're there to learn. And every 750 hours on the job and every two classes that they take, they give themselves an automatic 5% bump in pay. That usually takes the average person, average apprentice, about six months to do. So every six months, if you stay on track and you stay employed and you go to class, you're giving yourself a 5% bump in pay, somewhere around two bucks an hour. Imagine working any other job where every six months you got a two buck bump in pay. It's it's unheard of. But this is the beauty of working for a collective bargained unit, such as the Carpenters Union, one that trains you to be a professional, one that you go out and you earn that way, those wages for yourself and your family. And it's it's a great deal. And again, it's one of the best kept secrets out there. But we do have an amazing program and we do have a need to have people in these programs and we can't open the floodgates. You know, again, as I said earlier, we are member supported. Our programs are very selective as to who we bring in. Again, you don't need to have a high level of skill, but you have to have a high level of passion and dedication to your future as a union carpenter for us to really consider bringing in. Joe, can you tell us the process of how someone would get into your, into your union, into your program Apprentice, what is a pro- process? Yeah, it's, you know, for, again, I'm just going to speak. There's there's regional training centers all across the U.S. and Canada who are bringing people in into the UBC, into the Brotherhood of Carpenters. I'm, I'm not sure what the electricians vetting process or the plumbers, or the iron workers, or the laborers are, but I can speak specifically to my organization. It's as simple as going online to pnci.org and filling out an application. Now, we are Southwest Washington and Oregon. And right now we have 1700 apprentices in our program. There are only a few trades and only a few geographic areas within our area that are 
actively accepting applications. We have to, you know, run people through. So I represent at PNCI the specialty craft of diving, pile driving, millwrights, and central Oregon. And all my crafts are open. So if you were listening to this right now and say you lived in Bend, Oregon, central Oregon, and you wanted to be explore an opportunity as a union carpenter, you would go to pnci.org. You would put in your zip code. It would filter out that application for you. You'd put in the craft that you're interested in, and you would then upload all the documentation that is asked for. Do you have a driver's license? Do you have prior military service? Do you have a high school diploma or GED? Do you have work experience? Do you have volunteer experience? And hopefully all that you know, cumulative experience that gets uploaded into your application will then bring you to the next step, which is a basically a one-hour uh, orientation to the union, to the apprenticeship, to the expectations of you as an uh, apprentice within our program. After that, you would then be scheduled for an interview. And when you get interviewed, you're interviewed by both the union employee side and the union employer side of something we called a Joint Apprentice Training Committee, or JTC. And these folks are there to vet you out, to, again, look for your sincerity and your desire to better the life of your, yourself and your family through education as an apprenticeship for a union trade. And after the interview is done, your score is combined with your application. If you make the cut and there's opportunity available, you receive something called a union dispatch. And that union dispatch was the, the final key that seals the deal. Once you get dispatched to a union contractor, then you're enrolled into our program. Then the hard work right. starts. <laughs> then yeah. you gotta you gotta how, how stay in do, our program. Yes. Yeah. How long does the process typically take for them to get into the program? I know it takes a couple of years once you're in the program, but yeah, when they uh, do to that get in the program, it's usually about two months. So you got to be patient. Okay. I like to say I like to tell my applicants different than an apprentice. An applicant is someone who's interested in coming into the program. You have to practice the two P's, and the two P's are patience and persistence. Yes. You know, yes, and, I like uh, that. And, but it's worthwhile. And again, two months when you're really weighing that out to a career, which can last you 25, 30, 40 years of your life, two months to wait to get that opportunity is a, uh, in my opinion, well worth waiting for. Definitely. I'll tell you, there are a lot of jobs that take two months for you to get hired. I mean, that's not unusual. So um, I, I've, you know, you guys have, what I like is you guys have a process in the system. You know, you ever wonder why McDonald's is successful? McDonald's is successful because they have a process, not because they make great food. They've got a process. It's true and proven. From everything I'm listening to you, you have a process. You got a system and you put people in the system and boom, great things happen. For sure. And one of those things, just to, to further touch on that, Keith, uh, we are overseen by the Bureau of Labor and Industry in the state of Oregon that that not only monitors our union apprenticeship through the Carpenters, but all, also other union apprenticeships and the non-union apprenticeships that are out there. And they make sure that we hold our, our standards to their expectations. So there's no shortcuts. We've done away with the, you know, the good old boy network of, yeah, this is my, my brother's kid and he's a good guy. Let's bring him in. You know, yeah. we've got a vetting process that, again, makes it open and fair for everyone, regardless of, of sex or skin color or ethnicity or anything else. So it's, it's really a, a great system and it does open a lot of opportunities for people that may not have had opportunities to better their lives. Joe, tell us about your podcast. 
Yeah, well, thank you so much for asking. Grit Nation podcast has been just a lot like yours, about two years. I started in September of 2020. And uh, at that point in time, I had been elected as the president of the Pacific Northwest Regional Council of Carpenters. And uh, it was right at the beginning of COVID. And the Northwest Carpenters Union, is for, for short, had 28,000 members in six states. And I knew that I was not going to be able to, to get to all the locals. We couldn't, we weren't even having delegate meetings or quarterly delegate meetings because of the, the very strict oversight of uh, COVID protocols here in the Northwest. So I yes. wanted to be able to reach out to the membership and spread the word, spread the gospel, if you will, about you know, what we have, not only what we have as union members, but more importantly, what we have to lose if we let our guard down and we don't stay active within our unions, if we don't understand the structure of how we get these uh, wages and benefits and pensions and all that. So I started the show as a very labor-centric show. It was originally called Grit Northwest. I have since realized that the show was growing in its popularity and it was being listened to all across the, the US and Canada. So I rebranded it as Grit Nation. And I started changing the theme a little bit of the show, not being as focused and nuanced just in labor, because I realized that a lot of people that listen to labor shows, and I listen to a fair number of labor shows myself, or union labor shows, already get the message. It's almost like I was preaching to the choir. So I wanted yes. to start branching out and having a little more wide ranging topics and themes and guests on my show and reinforce some of the basic messages. And just this morning before our interview, Keith, I was doing some post edit work on an episode called uh, with an author that I had interviewed. He co-wrote a book called Dead in the Water. It's about hijacking and a murder and piracy and, and around the uh, the 2011 time of a, a cargo ship. And mm -hmm. I use that as a gateway to talk about the wages that a lot of these super tankers working for the petroleum industry and the international sh global shipping markets are Filipino workers. And they're making somewhere around $25,000 a year, yet they're spending you know 10 months at, at sea every year. But in their economy, that is great. This is a very you know, lucrative job, but it's it's a way to, to show more of a global perspective or a more wide-reaching perspective on, on the challenges that labor have today. And so the show, Not Like Yours, which comes out every week, which I applaud you, that's a lot of work. Mine comes out every yes. two weeks, and I, I really try to just open up my listeners' eyes and ears to other concepts that uh, maybe they hadn't been exposed to before. No, that's good. That's great. If I could grant you a wish to have one guest on your podcast, who would you pick and why? Oh, man, one guest on my podcast, who Tough would I question. pick and, and why? I'm a big fan of Malcolm Gladwell. I don't know if you know the I've author, Malcolm Gladwell, yeah, author, yeah. and, and his yeah. podcast, Revisionist History. I just really enjoy his writing. I enjoy his podcast. I enjoy his uh, persona. He's got a, a real unique way of looking at things. And uh, it's someone that I won't say I tried to emulate, but I've definitely learned a lot about storytelling and uh, looking at, at topics from from different angles. And I think Malcolm Gladwell would be the guy I'd love to have on my show someday. Definitely. Great author too. Oh yeah. Great author. Yeah, yeah some good for books. sure. <laughs> Definitely. We're going to wrap up. Please share a lesson you have learned from a mentor or parent that is still relevant and still important to you today. Wow. That's a great question. I'm just going to say that, uh, you know, tenacity is something I'm not sure where it was instilled upon me. I'd like to say there was one person that just told me to be tenacious and, and to, to continue pushing through the adversity and the hardship. And I, I'm really, I think it's just more of a, an accumulative 
amalgamation of all the people that I've worked with and been around and admired. And I just know that the people that truly succeed in life are the ones that even when it hurts, even when it's it's tough, it's raining outside, it's cold outside, your body aches, you know, the, the challenge is too daunting. They get up, they put on the boots and they, and they just get it done. They, they push through that. And, you know, it's, I think for those listening right now, you know, there's going to be a lot of obstacles coming away in your life in the future. And you just have to know that there's always a brighter side on the other side of that obstacle. And if you can push through and persevere, you're going to make it through. Great advice. Joe, thank you so much for being on the show. Can you please share how people can find you? Yeah, absolutely. You can go to the Grit Nation podcast at www.gritnationpodcast.com. I've got a website where all my episodes for the podcast are housed. I've also got some great giveaway prizes. I've got some fun sponsors that allow me to raffle off a t-shirt every month, a sweatshirt every quarter. I've got uh, Mark Martinez from the Martinez Tool Company. I think in my December drawing, I've got a $250 titanium handled M1 nice. uh, hammer. So go to gritnationpodcast.com and you can find the show there or you can find it on Apple, Spotify or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Joe, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Keith. I look forward to having you on my show one of these days. Definitely. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Skill Stadium. It would mean so much if you left a review on iTunes and told your family and friends about the podcast.